Well, I invite you to take your Bible and let's turn to Second Thessalonians. Second Thessalonians. A few folks have asked me, why Second Thessalonians? Why not First Thessalonians or something else? Well, there are a few reasons why. First of all, and please don't, please don't hit me too hard for saying this, but it's true. I'm just laying it all out on the table and I'm being honest with you. For the three or four reasons why I chose to explore Second Thessalonians today, the first reason is because Thessalonians is short. Thessalonians, Second Thessalonians especially, it's a brief letter. It doesn't take up a lot of real estate in your Bible. You'll notice it's just three short chapters. And that's what we have here, three short months during Pastor Bill's sabbatical to explore something. So I chose Second Thessalonians. And with God's help, we will do our best to get through this little book in about 12 messages or so. We have three months, three chapters. They're all brief, and I'm praying that we can do it. I believe we can. Much like the little engine who couldn't but got saved and kept saying, I think I can, I hope I can, by God's grace I pray I can. So that's the first reason why, is because it's short. Second reason, I chose Second Thessalonians because it follows along well with what we've already been studying. There's a lot of love and a lot of comfort and a lot of correction and a lot of looking forward to last things here in this book. So it makes sense for us to go ahead and transition from Second Peter to Second Thessalonians. As I've read this book over and over again here, especially in the last few weeks, I've been surprised to see just how much of myself and who I am and who we are as a body and what it is that we need together as a church, how much of that is represented here in this little epistle. So I think it's a great book for us to be studying right now. As a corporate body of individual believers, I am praying that the Spirit would use the next few months to teach us through his word how to love, how to witness, how to pray, how to suffer, and how to work in a way that glorifies God and strengthens our fellowship. Because Second Thessalonians, it might be a small book, but it does pack a powerful punch. It's an amazing book. And then finally, I really want us to visit this letter because truthfully, nobody knows about it. Nobody knows Second Thessalonians. First and Second Thessalonians are perhaps the most neglected letters in the entire New Testament. A minute ago, when I asked you to turn to Second Thessalonians, I'm guessing most of us in this room did one of two things. You either nonchalantly lowered your Bible into your lap and snuck a peek in the index or the table of contents to try and see exactly where it was, or you would have done what I would most likely have done, and that is probably fake it and start flipping around like you knew where you were going, thinking it has to be here somewhere between Romans and Hebrews, right? And that's okay. That's okay. You are in good company because most people are not familiar with the Thessalonian letters. By and large, they are neglected. Even the few commentators that have something to say about it are normally quick to point out that these letters are so often overlooked. Teachers just don't teach them. Pastors just don't preach them, but we definitely need them. We need First and Second Thessalonians. So those are the primary reasons as to why we're diving into Second Thessalonians this summer. Because it's short, it's amazing, and we need it. That said, let's begin with Paul's opening remarks found in the first four verses of chapter 1. Second Thessalonians chapter 1, starting with verse 1. He says, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy... To the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, 
because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. The title of this morning's message is The Bragworthy Church. And let me just say this first and foremost, because if I don't, I'm sure some of you will rightly check out for the rest of the message and not listen to anything else that I have to say here concerning this passage, and that's totally fine. When we talk about bragging here, we're talking about bragging and what the Lord has done. Notice that in this passage and in the other passages that we're going to look at today, he's not bragging for the sake of puffing them up. He's not bragging to say, okay, I'm going to give you a pat on the back and I'm going to puff you up so that other people will be puffed up as well and we're just going to destroy this whole thing from the inside out. That's not his purpose. Instead, he's hoping to encourage other people with their right example by giving praise where praise is due and all glory back to God because of what he has done through this congregation. And that's different, but it's okay. It's okay to brag and it's okay to boast that way. That's how the apostles bragged. That's how they boasted. And they did it for a purpose and for a reason, and that was to encourage others. Just a couple of weeks ago, we did something very similar here, didn't we? We bragged and we boast, and we were so thankful for what the Lord has done through 25 years of faithful ministry here at this church under the current leadership of Pastor Bill and Mary Walker. And that was perfectly fine. It was good and acceptable to do that because, again, we're bragging in what the Lord has done and how he has used faithful men and women to accomplish his his purposes. Unfortunately, that's not what we see so much of the time when we think of bragging, especially within the church. Pastors do it all the time. And a lot of churches brag about a lot of things. If you've never done this, I encourage you to take an afternoon sometime and surf the internet. Surf the web. Just type in different churches for different areas. Just type in Baptist church and then a city or, or whatever church. And you'll be surprised, maybe, at some of the things. First of all, just about all of them say the same thing on their homepage. Welcome home. I purposefully didn't do that with ours just because I'm rebellious and I didn't want to be like everybody else. But you'll be surprised whenever you look at all these different churches' websites and some of the things that they brag about. It really is amazing. I mean, some churches brag about their numbers. Others, their various programs or how much money they have or how many buildings they've built, where their campuses are located, and so forth. But it makes you wonder, as you look around at these things online and and you look at the things that people are so proud of, what is it that truly makes a church great, according to Scripture? What is it? What, What did the apostles, the earliest missionaries, church planners, and pillars of the church, by what benchmark did they evaluate the church's true worth and effectiveness? What was their standard? What was their rule for determining authentic community or whatever popular Christian catchphrase is floating around in the culture these days for a church that actually does what it's called to do? Well, the Thessalonian church was far from perfect. They were not a perfect church. And we're going to, as we get into this letter, we're going to see that. They had questions with regarding their eschatology and, and where they were currently and, and the sufferings that they were enduring. They weren't perfect, but they were a good church. They were a solid church, one that was loved by the apostles. And they're one that the apostles loved to brag about. Well, our, our letter begins with three heavy hitters, Paul, Silvanus, or Silas, as many of us would know him, and Timothy. Silvanus was his Roman name. Silas was his Jewish name. And we know that Paul wrote the letter 
Because at the very end of chapter 3 and verse 17, he says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. So Paul wrote the letter, but Timothy and Silas happened to be there with him, and they agreed with him and all of the different things that he wrote here. These three heavy hitters were at the time enjoying an 18-month stay in Corinth when the letter was written, around the time of 51 or 52 AD. And I only mention that because if the New Testament was compiled chronologically in the order in which it was written, then 2 Thessalonians would be the third or fourth book on that list. The first being James or possibly Galatians, followed by 1 and 2 Thessalonians. Which is interesting, because the Thessalonian church, when they first received this letter, the Gospels hadn't even been written yet. They couldn't pull a copy of Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John off the shelf. And many of the New Testament letters were not in circulation because they hadn't been written yet. All they had was the testimony of the apostles and encouraging correspondences of divine truth like this one in 1 Thessalonians and so forth. But look at how these apostles begin the letter in the first two verses. In verse 1, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then in verse 2, grace and peace, or grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul begins by repeating himself. He greets them in God their Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, and he blesses them with a reminder that their grace and peace comes from God their Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then in verses 3 and 4, he begins to encourage them and build them up by bragging on them. And he begins each verse with this supreme sense of appreciation. In verse 3, he says, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right. In verse 4, Therefore we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God. This was a brag-worthy church. And it was not out of character for Paul to encourage churches by saying he was proud of them and boasting about them and their growth to the Lord in, in regards to other churches. We'll take the Corinthians, for example. After being rebuked harshly, the majority of them repented of their sins. And so we see there in 2 Corinthians that this warmed the apostle's heart. He says in 2 Corinthians 7.14, For whatever boast I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And again in chapter 8, verse 24, So give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you to these men. In chapter 9, verse 3, But I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready, as I said, you would be. In fact, we even have an example. We have an archived example of what Paul's boasting would have looked like. It's provided for us there at the beginning of 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Let's go ahead and look at that passage, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, just because this is longer than your standard verse or two. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, there he is bragging about the Macedonians. He says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints, and this not as we expected, 
But they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. Notice he doesn't brag about the Macedonians' Easter presentation. He doesn't brag about their campuses or their expansion projects or anything like that. But he does boast in their joy and affliction and their generosity and poverty. Both of those are qualities that spring out and burst forth from the same attributes that we see here in the Thessalonian church. So what are those traits? And what is it that we need to grow in as a church if we are to make God and his servants and the rest of our fellowship proud in a good way? How do we become a bragworthy church? Well, first of all, we see that a healthy church grows together in faith. In faith. Look at verse 3. He says, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly. The apostles were so thankful for the Thessalonians, they said, It is only right. In a perfect world, we would continually, always, at all times, in every circumstance, with every tick of the clock, we would never stop to perpetually give thanks to God for you, because that is the right thing to do. Why? Because your faith is growing abundantly. Now, when I first read that, I had to scratch my head for a moment and say, what does that mean? What does it mean specifically for your faith as a church to grow abundantly? Is Paul saying that they are more saved today than they were a few months ago? Probably not. Well, let's flip back a couple of pages to the beginning of the other letter, 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians. The introductions to each of these two letters are nearly identical, with just a couple of slight variations. 1 Thessalonians begins with Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. There he commends them for their faith. But notice, and this is not a passive faith that he commends them for, but this is their work of faith because this is a real faith. This is a faith that works. Remember James 2, how James talks about a faith that doesn't work? And how does he refer to that faith? He says that faith is dead. Paul is saying here that there is no question when it comes to the Thessalonians. They have a living and an active faith, a faith that works. This church was the real deal. And there was no question when it came to that. He goes on to describe the source and manifestation of that faith in the next two verses. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you, not only in word, but also in power, and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. So when the gospel seed went out to these Thessalonians, it found good, rich soil, and its roots planted deep, full of power and conviction. Paul says, God did the work, but the results are obvious. We know what the results are because we can see them. These people have been radically changed by the power of of the gospel. And so the Thessalonians were a far cry from mamby pamby Christianity. They didn't just raise a hand, walk an aisle, or sign a card and forget about their commitment as soon as they hit the parking lot to discuss lunch plans. 
That's not what the Thessalonian church did. No, these were committed Christians. When he speaks of their faith growing abundantly, he is referring to their faithfulness. And that is so important. So important. In preparing for this message, here's one of the brief but best definitions I found for faithfulness out there. Simply, faithfulness, the Greek pistis, is an inner commitment that consistently expresses itself as an outward loyalty that remains true to one's spiritual convictions. That's good. It's an inner commitment that consistently expresses itself as an outward loyalty that remains true to to one's spiritual convictions. So faithfulness is an inner commitment that consistently produces an outward loyalty. Staying in 1 Thessalonians, look at what Paul says there in chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly, night and day, that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Again, Paul is just gushing with thankfulness and praise for these people. Because they bring so much joy to his heart. And he longs to see them face to face and encourage their deep conviction in the gospel. He wants to fill in any gaps that they may have in their theology. And bring greater clarity to the doctrines that inform their inner faith and fuel their outward resolve. He doesn't say that they lack faith here. He simply says that he wants to equip them with even more of God's saving and sustaining truth. Well, fast forward a few months later, and you can almost hear Paul choking on his tears of joy as he writes, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly. His ceaseless prayer was answered, at least in part. He couldn't see them face to face, but the report came back that they were, in fact, growing in their faith. And they weren't just growing a little bit. Here and there, they were growing abundantly. You say, good for them, Hans, but what does that have have to do with us? I mean, I'm glad that they were growing in their faith. But what does that mean for us, for First Baptist Church of Arlington? Well, when it comes to the church, the 1st century and and the 21st century are not worlds apart. They're not too different in the sense that the apostles had their share of ministry partners, fellow pastors, and close friends in the faith who all did a complete 180. And abandoned their walk with the Lord. The church has always had and will always have both wheat and weeds, saved and unsaved, true believers and false brothers. Jesus said so, the apostles said so, and there probably isn't a believer in this room who hasn't been burned or severely hurt by a good friend or a family member whose soil had proved over time to be more rocky than rich. Wavering faith. And family falling away is a familiar sorrow and a grief that is far too common in the church. It always has been, and it will be until the Lord returns. But the flip side to the pain of watching someone fall is the joy of watching someone rise. That's the flip side. And so often we focus on the negative. So often our hearts do break, and rightly so, for people who wander and leave the faith, who abandon their hope. And we should be broken over that. But how often, how often do we appreciate and grab onto the joy of watching someone rise? Of watching someone actually grow in their faith. Someone spiritually mature over time. Let me tell you, as one of your pastors here, if you want to destroy me and make it count, just abandon your faith. That is one of the worst things you could possibly do to me. 
If you really hate me that much, abandon your faith. And that's not just true for me. That's true for all of your pastors, your elders, your teachers, and your brothers and sisters in Christ. If you really want to hurt us, then abandon your faith. But if you want to put wind in our sails and delight in our hearts, then grow abundantly. Grow abundantly, inwardly and outwardly, in an inward way that produces a consistent outward result so that your faith becomes evident to everyone else. Because there is nothing like that. I can tell you right now, there are things that will just suck the joy right out of you. Whenever you hear reports about so-and-so over here and so-and-so over there, and we have plenty of those in the church, don't we? But how wonderful is it when you hear, yeah, but so-and-so over here, they got victory over that. Finally. I can see it in their life. Or you know this guy over here? I remember him in his early 20s. Praise God something happened with him. I mean, it's, it's a wonderful, encouraging thing for the church, for all of us, as brothers and sisters in Christ, to watch each other grow. And we should. After all, we all start out, every single one of us, like the father of the boy with an unclean spirit in Mark 9. Right? What did he say? He cried out, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. We all start out there. But hopefully, even though that's where we all begin, that is not where our story should end. Hopefully, your faith is growing abundantly so that what was said of Abraham could one day be said of you. Romans four twenty and 21 says, No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. We all wobble in the beginning. Every single one of us do. But over time, as our faith is exercised and stretched, we should all grow stronger in our resolve, in our confidence, and in our belief. A church that grows together abundantly in faith encourages other believers, and ultimately it pleases God. In other words, they become a brag-worthy church. That's number one. A healthy church grows together in faith. Number two, a healthy church grows together in love. In love. Look at the last half of verse 3. He says, Because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. I like how the superlative nature of what is written here gets captured in the NASB translation. There it says, The love of each one of you toward one another grows ever greater. It grows ever greater. In other words, your love, it just keeps growing. It just keeps growing and growing and growing and growing and growing. For Paul, this was another answer to prayer. In 1 Thessalonians 3.12, he prays, And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. Paul let them know, this is how I pray for you. When I close the door at home, when, I, when it's just me and the Lord, this is what I say to him concerning you. I ask him that he would make your love increase and abound more and more. But that's not to say that this church was a struggling church when it came to love to begin with. Chapter 4, verses 9 and 10 tell us, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. And the good news is, is they did. They did. Their love for one another increased. It grew greater and greater. So much so that our text even tells us here that every one of them, 
Every one of them was increasing in their love for one another. So no one was left out. It's not like we have a core group of about 10 or 12 individuals over here that are just doing all the love and everybody else is just kind of pittering around on the outside. It's not like, oh, we've got this Sunday school class over here that's really just excelling when it comes to love or this ladies group over here or this men's group over there. Instead he's saying, no, every single one of them were increasing in love for one another. It was a whole church endeavor. But that takes effort. It takes effort because... Growing in love means loving people that don't share your interests. It means practically living out Philippians 2 and considering the needs of others more important than your own. It means deferment, sacrifice, time, tears, and a lot of prayer. Growing in love means dying to self and choosing to serve people who might not serve you back. That's what growing in love practically looks like. That's what it means. I like how Dr. Richard Mayhew and Dr. John MacArthur define this church's love in their book, Biblical Doctrine. They write, This love is a communicable divine attribute that is central to the Father's character, put on display by Christ at the cross, and enabled in believers by the Holy Spirit. I like that. That's really good. Thus, love is a communicable divine attribute that is central to the Father's character put on display by Christ on the cross and enabled in believers by the Holy Spirit. Love can be defined broadly as the conscious, sacrificial, and volitional commitment to the welfare of another person in obedience to God's word, regardless of that person's response or what one does or does not receive from him or her or what love costs one to give. They add, This love of Christians towards other Christians, as might be expected, is the most often commended one another response in the New Testament. Church, we are called to love. We're called to love consciously, sacrificially, continuously. Jesus told the twelve, by this all people will know that you are my disciples. By what? By your programs? By your building projects? By your numbers? No. By your love. The love that you have for one another. A church to be proud of is a body who loves. It is far too easy. It is way too easy, church, to darken these doors once or twice a week and only love our friends. Amen? It's too easy for us to do that, myself included. But loving a stranger or someone in a different age bracket or someone who might bathe less often than you do, that requires a little more effort, doesn't it? Because it requires discipline. I came across an old magazine article last week about a Palestinian pastor titled, When Love is Impossible. And I want to share it with you here because I thought it was so good and it rightly applies to what we're looking at here with love. It says, a Bible college professor, Johanna, K- uh, forgive me, Johanna, Johanna Catanacho, who pastors a small church in Jerusalem, is subjected to much persecution. Israeli soldiers who patrol the city looking for potential terrorists impose spontaneous curfews on Palestinians and have the legal right to shoot at a Palestinian who does not respond quickly enough to their summons. Johanna tried and failed in his attempts to love his enemies. The Israeli soldiers' random checks for Palestinian identification cards, sometimes stopping them for hours, fed Johanna's fear and anger. As he confessed his inability to God, Johanna realized something significant. The radical love of Christ is not an emotion, but a decision. He decided to show love, however reluctantly, by sharing the gospel message with the soldiers on the street. With new resolution, 
Johanna began to carry copies of a flyer with him, written in Hebrew and English, with a quotation from Isaiah 53 and the words, Real Love, printed across the top. Every time a soldier stopped him, he handed him his ID card with the flyer. Because the quote came from the Hebrew Scriptures, the soldier usually asked him about it before letting him go. After several months, Johanna realized his feelings towards the soldiers had changed. I was surprised, you know, he says. It was a process. But I didn't really pay attention to that process. My older feelings were just not there anymore. I would pass in the same street, see the same soldier as before, but now find myself praying, Lord, let them stop me so I can share with them the love of Christ. Love is so much more than a feeling. It is a decision. It is a discipline. Jesus said to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. But if we, all of us, don't purposefully decide to grow in our love for each other here in the church, then how far from the mark have we fallen from that standard even that Christ has called us to? Growing in love means dying to self, and that is hard to do, especially at the start, especially at the beginning, but it does change us over time. And that is exactly what we as a church have been called to do. The bride of Christ has been set aside to grow in love. To grow in faith and to grow in love. Not just a little here and there, but abundantly and increasingly. Finally, a healthy church grows together in fortitude. In fortitude. Look at verse 4. And yes, I, I do realize that not all of my points start with the same letter. Forgive me. I'm not going to make that happen. If, if I have two F's and an L, so be it. Look at verse 4. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. One of the things I love so much about so many of the old hymns is how honest they are when it comes to pain and suffering. Almost 250 years ago, John Newton wrote a hymn titled, I Ask the Lord That I Might Grow. Some of you might be familiar with it. It's a remarkable song that nobody sings anymore. And if I had Bill's voice, believe me, I would sing it for you this morning. But the words on their own, they say simply this, I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace. Sounds a lot like our text so far. Might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. That's a really, that's a really good prayer. "'Twas he who taught me thus to pray, and he, I trust, has answered prayer, but it has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair. I hope that in some favored hour at once he'd answer my request, and by his love's restraining power subdue my sins and give me rest. Who doesn't want that? Lord, just do it now. Change me now. Give me the rest that I need so desperately. Make me more like you. Give me that love and that faith and that peace and that grace that I need. Just do it now, Lord.' Instead of this, he made me feel the evil, the hidden evils of my heart, and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul at every part. Yea, more than this, his own hand he seemed, intent to aggravate my woe, crossed all the fair designs I schemed, humbled my heart, and made me low. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? "'Tis in this way,' the Lord replied, "'I answer prayer for grace and faith. "'These inward trials I employ from self and pride "'to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy "'that thou may find thine all in me.'" You can see how, 
Heavy songs like this one have been replaced on the radio with simple ballads about being recklessly loved or having your heart set on fire. Because nobody wants this. Nobody wants this. Dying to self hurts. Being humbled hurts. Having your schemes of earthly joys broken hurts. But if you want to grow in faith and love, this is how God does that. This is how he works. He doesn't grow men and women into spiritually mature monuments of his grace with warm fuzzies. He tests us. He afflicts us. He disciplines us because he loves us. The Thessalonians probably wondered, Lord, why so much persecution? Why so much pain? Why am I going through this right now? Well, he uses suffering to mold us and to shape us more and more into the likeness of his son, the ultimate sufferer. You realize that Christ suffered far more than you and I will ever have to endure. A hundred lifetimes over and beyond. But here's the good news. Here's the good news about today's pain, especially when you suffer for Christ. 2 Corinthians 1.5 For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. Abundantly in comfort. Or verse 7, our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you also will share in our comfort. Or 1 Peter 4.13, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Friends, if it is not underlined in your Bible by now, please underline it. 2 Timothy 3.12. 2 Timothy 3.12. It is the one New Testament verse that no one has hanging on their refrigerator as a life verse. No one loves this verse, 2 Timothy 3.12. I promise you, no one has this framed on their wall as you walk in the door. But this is what it says. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Isn't that encouraging? You have to ask why. Why would God allow persecutions and afflictions to attack his people. There are many reasons, not the least of which, though, is the fact that persecution kills fake faith. It kills fake faith, and it validates real faith. Remember the first parable? What did Jesus say in his explanation of it? Matthew thirteen twenty and 21. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. God's word will sometimes plant itself on a rock and endure for a little while, but where there is no root, there is no life, and persecution will kill a fake faith just as quickly as it began. This is the complete opposite of what the apostles are bragging about here concerning the church in Thessalonica. When he says, your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in all of the afflictions that you are enduring. Persecution kills fake faith, but it also validates real faith. It validates real faith. And this validation is clearly seen in 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter 1 verses 6 and 7 say, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor 
at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The various trials that grieve us in this life prove that our faith is genuine. And I would argue that the same can be said for our love. Persecution kills a superficial love. And fair-weather friends scatter at the first sign of trouble, don't they? I don't know if I should share this with you or not. Just know I was not doing anything illegal, okay? There was a time when I was younger, in my early 20s, I was hanging out with some friends in a place I probably shouldn't have been hanging out in, okay? Wasn't doing anything wrong, wasn't doing anything illegal. We were just young, aimless kids hanging out someplace, just doing whatever. And of course, the cops show up. So, like an idiot... I walk over to the police and I hand them my driver's license and I start explaining to them, gentlemen, we're not doing anything wrong here. You know, we're just, we're just hanging out. We probably should be doing that at home or some other place, you know, kind of a thing late at night. And, uh, I turned around and two or three of my buddies had decided to follow me. Two other buddies of mine were gone. They had ran as soon as they saw police lights, they were out of there. And the rest of us, we eventually gave them a hard time, of course, once we caught up with them and everything. Like, why did you run? Why did you leave us with the cops? We weren't even doing anything wrong in the first place. What's wrong with you? But it's interesting because those friends, it took a long time for them to gain trust with us again. Because as soon as they saw a sign of trouble, those guys were out of there. Real love, as we saw earlier, Love that is central to the Father's character, put on display by Christ of the cross, and enabling, or enabled by believers or unbelievers by the Holy Spirit, that love will only grow as we face the horrors of this fallen world together. That love doesn't scatter. That love doesn't crumble superficially under the weight and the pressure of the world. Well, at the risk of overstating the obvious, dead things can't grow. You can plant an iron bar in the ground, water it, talk to it, give it plenty of sunshine, but it's never going to grow leaves, get taller, or drop seeds. Why? Because it's a dead thing. Dead things don't grow. Only living things grow. That's why all of us have been called to grow. We've all been called to do that. We've been called to grow both individually and corporately as the living church of the living God. So ask yourself, am I growing abundantly in faith? Has my confidence in the truth become evident to everyone else in my life? Is my love for everyone here growing ever greater? Do I genuinely love every brother and sister in Christ here today? And if not, what am I doing about it? Ask yourself about your resolve, your confidence in God's promises. Are you prepared to stand for the truth no matter what comes your way? Are you steadfast enough in your faith to say that? Are you growing in fortitude or are you becoming more and more self-conscious as people like Christians less and less? As individuals, we need to all self-evaluate and answer these questions honestly. And as a church, I pray that we grow in these things together and become more and more like these praiseworthy Thessalonians. I was wondering this week, even as I was looking at this passage, if the apostles were alive today and Paul wrote a letter to us, how would that letter begin? Would it say, First Arlingtonians, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of Arlington in the state of Washington, grace and peace to you and God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Would he then say, I am so thankful for you because? Would he say, I've told all the churches in California about you. I brag about you all the time of your faith and love and stability. Or would he say, what happened to you? What happened to you? You received the word so quickly, but now I hear reports that persecution is on the way and you're already dying on the vine. 
Church, before we take communion together here, I realize that this morning's message is brief and that we've only looked at a few verses of introduction here, but I hope that you are encouraged, as I am, to pursue these noble qualities with even greater intensity. Because when I stand before the Lord on that day, I most certainly do not want to hear him say, depart from me, I never knew you. But I also don't want to hear him say, well, you made it. I want to hear him say, well done. Well done, my good and faithful. And as a church, I pray that we would be like the Thessalonians in these regards and grow even more so in these areas of faith, love, and fortitude. Purposefully, intentionally, even as we are already doing, church, let's do this more and more and more. All right? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much, again, for your word. We thank you for this early letter that was sent to the Thessalonians and the fact that we have it here today, that we can be blessed by it, that we can read about these people who grew in their faith and in their love and in their fortitude amidst terrible times, times far worse than ours even, under severe persecution, Lord. You grew this church and you did wonderful things with it. Lord, I pray that the same would be done here. Lord, that this church, that the First Baptist Church of Arlington family, that we would continue to grow in love and in faith and in fortitude, but that we would do so even more and more and more, Lord. That we would grow in faith, that it would become evident to everyone else around us here, in the community and beyond, that this is a church that believes in you, that believes wholeheartedly in your word, that has placed our faith and our trust in you and your truth and nothing else. And that that would be evident in our actions, in our lives, and what we say and do and how we conduct ourselves in the world. I also pray that we would grow in our love for one another. Lord, that is how people will know that we are yours, is if we grow in love for one another. And that's not just an emotional thing. The emotions are great. The emotionals are a, a byproduct and a blessing and a grace gift from you. But Lord, I pray that we would grow in the discipline of love, that we would go beyond ourselves and go beyond what's comfortable for us, and that we'd reach out to other, other brothers and sisters in Christ, ones that we may not even know that well, and that we would love truly in a way that increases, in a way that abounds, in a way that grows greater and greater over time for one another. And Lord, I pray that as we do become less and less popular in our culture, that we would grow in fortitude, that we would grow in strength, that we would not waver, that persecution would not reveal a fake faith or a falsehood of, of intentions amongst us, but that we would grow in strength and in firmness and steadfastness and knowing that your truth is in fact true. And because of that, because of that, we can face tomorrow, we can face whatever comes our way. And, the we, and we know that the exercising of our faith will only make us stronger in the end. Lord, I pray all of these things. These are grace gifts from you. These are things that you do in a church. These are things that you produce. And again, Lord, we would never brag in ourselves, but we pray that we would be a bragworthy church and that you would receive all glory, all honor, all praise and power. And Lord, I pray that others would look at us and be encouraged, that we wouldn't be a shameful church, but a praiseworthy church, a church that honors you and pursues you wholeheartedly in all of these things and that we would grow in faith, love, and fortitude. 
Thank you so much, again, for your word. Thank you for the example of the Thessalonians here and the apostles. I pray that as we take communion here, that these truths would just find greater meaning and and greater color in life even as we reflect on what you have done for us in your death, burial, and resurrection. We pray all of these things in your name. Amen.